john humphrey noise and his bible communists the doctrine by b b warfield this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org it will be well for us to obtain some sort of connected view of the religious system which noise taught as a whole we have already had occasion to observe what is obvious in itself and was very fully recognized by noise that his religious system was determined by two fundamental doctrines the two cornerstones of doctrine equally important on which communism rests we read are the doctrine of complete regeneration or salvation from sin and the truth that the second coming of christ and the founding of his heavenly kingdom took place eighteen hundred years ago the first furnishes the personal or experimental basis the second the historical and political the former of these determining doctrines is unduly subordinated to the latter in the following enunciation of the most important elements of faith held by the communists no doubt because this statement is drawn up from the point of view of their social or political theories and is printed in the opening pages of noise's formal exposition of those theories nevertheless the most of what was really effective in noise's faith appears in it and it is worth quoting here for the pointed brevity of its enunciation of the elements of his faith with which it does deal we believe in the bible as the text-book of the spirit of truth in jesus christ as the eternal son of god in the apostles and primitive church as the exponents of the everlasting gospel we believe that the second advent took place at the period of the destruction of jerusalem that at that time there was a primary resurrection and judgment in the spiritual world that the final kingdom of god then began in the heavens that the manifestation of that kingdom in the visible world is now approaching that its approach is ushering in the second and final resurrection and judgment that the church on earth is now rising to meet the approaching kingdom in the heavens and to become its duplicate and representative that the inspiration or open communion with god and the heavens involving perfect holiness is the element of connection between the church on earth and the church in the heavens and the power by which the kingdom of god is to be established and reign in the world there is no lack of comprehensive statements of noise's faith he was rather fond of framing series of articles of faith or doctrinal theses he prints for example in the witness of august twenty eighteen thirty seven a full systematic statement of what we believe in thirty-four articles and again in the perfectionist of february twenty two eighteen forty five fifty theses of the second reformation each of these fairly covers the whole ground of his faith we may however perhaps content ourselves for such a general glance over the entire system with the shorter series of articles printed in the preface to the berean these he speaks of as a frank synopsis of the leading doctrines of the book the book itself being the religious book of the community from which noise advises us the religious theories of the community may be best ascertained a polemic form is given these articles and in each instance the doctrine taught in the community is set in its relations to the teachings of other bodies we omit that feature of them and otherwise compress them and so arrive at the following nine heads of doctrine which may be thought fairly to comprise in utmost brevity the system taught by noise one god is not a trinity but a duality father and son these two are co-eternal but not co-equal this duality in the godhead is imaged in the twofold personality of the first man who was made male and female and as adam was to eve so is the father to the son two 
god hath foreordained all that comes to pass evil however was eternal and hence does not fall under the divine foreordination its admission into god's creation nevertheless was foreordained and this was done because it was necessary for the judgment and destruction of the uncreated evil the foreordination of the reprobation of some men and the salvation of others rests on foresight of their divergent conduct three in consequence of adam's transgression all men are born under the spiritual power of satan but there are two essentially different classes of men one class are of the very seed of satan and in every sense depraved the other class are only subjected to satan's evil influence and therefore instinctively respond to the word of god when it comes to them for the atonement is not legal but spiritual the death of christ does not satisfy the demands of the law in the place of sinners it perfects christ in all human sympathies destroys the spiritual power of the devil in whom all men are held captive by nature and delivers those whom he thus wakes and releases from the condemning sin occasioning power of the law five the motives of the law and a change of purpose in the creature are necessary preparations for the second birth but the second birth itself is a change not of purpose or acts but of spiritual condition it is a divorce of the human spirit from the power of satan and a junction of it with the spirit of god it is a progressive work in the double effects of outward cleansing brought about by external moral and spiritual influences and the inward quickening communicated by the life of christ through faith six we agree with the most ultra class of perfectionists that whatever is born of god is altogether free from sin but this complete freedom from sin is not ordinarily attained in the first stage of discipleship hence there is in the church a class of persons called believers or disciples but not sons of god and they are not yet free from sin seven whoever is born of god will infallibly persevere in holiness unto salvation but believers who are not yet sons of god may fall away eight christ's second coming took place in connection with the destruction of jerusalem at the end of the time of the jews at that time those were judged who had been ripened for the harvest of history by the old testament dispensation and the preaching of christ to the gentiles the formal judgment is yet to come at the end of the time of the gentiles bearing the same relation to the period in which we live as that former judgment did to the precedent time nine those that sow to the flesh shall reap eternal punishment it is in the vague generality given to them in such brief statements as this that noises doctrines appear to their best advantage when taken up one by one and explicated in their details their combined grotesque crudity and reckless extravagance are seen to pass all belief he has not escaped wholly from the hands of his teachers nathaniel w taylor has given him the general method of his thinking moses stuart has built the piers on which he supports his dogmas the fanatical perfectionists of central and western new york have supplied to him their fundamental content but he has rounded out the outline and filled in the chinks with material derived from the most outlandish sources giving to the whole an aspect both fantastic and in the highest degree repellent he has been most influenced by the shakers or it would be more correct to say that the whole formal nature of his system was borrowed from them they taught for instance that god is a dual person male and female that adam was also dual having been made in god's image that all angels and spirits are also both male and female and that the distinction of sex in mankind is eternal inhering in the soul itself they taught also that the second coming of christ had already taken place that the church has been apostate since the primitive age and is only now in themselves being rebuilt 
that the kingdom of heaven and the personal rule of god is now in process of restoration that the old law has been abolished and the direct intercourse between heaven and earth has been renewed that sinlessness of life is not only a possibility but an obligation that the use of marriage has ceased and that death itself has passed away and become only a change of dress a shedding of the visible robe of the flesh and assumption of the invisible glory of the spirit to every one of these items of shaker teaching noise presents a clear counterpart sometimes he simply takes the shaker doctrine over just as he found it more frequently he tried to fit it into his own personal lines of thinking but even when he most alters it as in his transformation of their celibacy into his promiscuity the genetic connection is not wholly obscured he has not contented himself however with borrowing from the shakers he has not disdained to pick up fragments of notions from what appears to have been his student's reading of the early history of the church and thus to embroider his doctrine with scraps of all sorts of outworn heresies thus for example he has thus given it especially the odd aspect of a revival of gnostic dualism the place which the dualistic principle takes in noise's theological constructions is nothing less than astonishing we have seen that following the shakers he conceives god as a dual being consisting of the father and the word and if he does not go on with the shakers and proclaim him flatly in his duality male and female he fails of this by the narrowest of margins he speaks of the law of duality which is indicated in all nature and suggested by the creation of the first pair and then of this law he declares that it takes its rise from the constitution of god himself who is dual the father and the son in whose image man was made male and female and of whose nature the whole creation is a reflection nature being a reflection of the nature of god we may of course learn what god's nature is from nature if we reason says he from the seen to the unseen assuming that the essential nature of the effect is in the cause we have proof as broad as the universe that the godhead is a duality for every link of the chain of productive life in its whole visible extent from the lowest region of the vegetable kingdom to the highest of the animal is a duality the distinction between male and female is as universal as vitality and all visible evidence goes to prove that it is the indispensable condition of reproduction that is of vital creation if we find two elements in all the streams of life why should we not infer that the same two elements are in the fountain if this reasoning has any validity whatever it proves not merely that there is a duality in the divine being but that the duality takes the specific form of a differentiation into male and female accordingly we find noise saying we are led to the simple conclusion that the uncreated creator the head of the universe like the head of mankind and the head of every family though one is yet twain mark ten eight in a word that the creation has a father and a mother and his formal confession of faith runs we believe not in the trinity nor in the unity but in the duality of the godhead and that duality in our view is imaged in the twofold personality of the first man who was made male and female genesis one twenty seven he does to be sure add as adam was to eve so is the father to the son i e he is the same in nature but greater in power and glory and this can hardly be understood otherwise than as confining the difference between the father and son substantially to one of power and glory and elsewhere he certainly argues at considerable length for this general idea perhaps his most lucid explanation of his meaning however is conveyed in the followed extended sentence 
I do regard the Father and the Son as two spirits who bear a similar social, not physical, relation to each other as that which exists between man and woman, one of whom is greater than the other, as the man is greater than the woman, who love each other and have pleasure in their fellowship, as man and woman love and have pleasure in spiritual fellowship, who are the joint parents of all created things, as man and woman are the joint parents of their offspring, who are thus the prototype in whose image Adam and Eve were made. If this, however, be all that Noyes meant, there certainly is less in his conclusion than in his premises. If the sexual distinction in God may be understood, however, only of a differentiation in him of those spiritual qualities and modes of action which we associate with the two sexes as known to us among men, the same cannot be said of any other living beings. All other living beings besides God are veritably male and female. This is true, for example, of the angels. I confess, writes Noyes, I see nothing very horrible in the idea of there being sexual distinctions in the angelic race. If the distinction of spirits, the twofold life, which I have described in what I have said of God, exists in the angelic nature, as I believe it exists in every living thing, from God to the lowest vegetable, I see no very alarming reason why that distinction should not be expressed in the bodily form of angels as well as man. Of course, this involves the assignment of a corporeal nature to angels, and this noise does without hesitation, and then proceeds to interpret Genesis 6, 1 and 2, Jude 6 and following, of carnal sinning on their part. Not only does sex distinction thus exist in the angels, it persists also in the disembodied souls of men, the human soul is not in noise's view however pure spirit which itself is thought of by him after the analogy of what he calls fluids that is to say the imponderable fluids of the old physicists electricity galvanism magnetism light heat and therefore at least after a material image it is the product of the union of this spirit of the increate spirit which is the breath of god and the dust of the ground it is thus, he says, a modification of spirit produced by union with a material body. It takes the form of the body and its size and parts, and receives into itself some of the properties of matter. As Adam's body was spiritualized matter, so conversely Adam's soul was materialized spirit. The soul thus stands between spirit and matter. The materialization of the spirit in the soul gives it its individuality and immortality. Had it not been thus materialized on the release of the spirit from the body, it would return to the abyss of life whence it came, but it has entered into the soul, into a materialized or partly indurated state, and so persists in separation from the body. On the other hand, as the whole nature of God is in the breath of God, the spirit which enters into the composition of the soul of man is still in communication with God and assimilated to him. This dualism of sex characterizing the mode of existence of all animal being is, however, far from the whole of the dualism which noise teaches. Beneath it he discovers an underlying ontological dualism according to which an eternal God stands over against an eternal matter. And side by side with this, not identical with it, he discovers yet another eternal dualism, an ethical dualism dividing the realms of spirit itself, between the principle of good, which is God, and the principle of evil, which is the devil. Creation with him is not ex nihilo, but out of pre-existent uncreated material, and if we ask him whence this material came, he claims the right to reply by another question, whence did God come? All creation, however, if we can speak of creation when nothing is really originated, is from God, 
it is not parcelled out between god and the devil not that sin or death originated in god or any of his works or that god by creation by decree or by permission gives birth to evil the ultimate cause of all evil is an uncreated evil being as the ultimate cause of all good is an uncreated good being but evil enters the realm of created being subsequently to its creation god permitting it so to enter into his creation because only in this field can he grapple with it and destroy it an authentic manichaean trait by this fall adam who was a creature of god came under a divided dominion the streams from the two eternal fountains flowed together in him his spiritual nature was primarily good as proceeding from good but secondarily evil as propagated by the devil it seems however that though propagating his offspring in his own likeness the two elements of his compound character were distributed unevenly among them god and the devil strove for mastery over them and the result was two distinct classes of men in one of which good in the other evil predominates as the offspring of adam's body was twofold distinguished into male and female part following the nature of the primary and part the nature of the secondary parent so the offspring of his spiritual nature was twofold distinguished like that nature into good and evil part following the character of the primary and part the character of the secondary spiritual element in other words adam has two sorts of children one of them like himself primarily of god secondarily of the devil of whom abel was a specimen the other primarily of the devil and secondarily of god of whom cain was a specimen thus mankind are divided spiritually into two classes of different original character proceeding respectively from uncreated good and evil the depravity of mankind then is of two sorts the seed of the woman are depraved as adam was after the fall not in their original individual spirits which are of god but by their spiritual combination with and subjection to the devil on the other hand the seed of the serpent are depraved as cain was not only by combination with and subjection to the devil but by original spiritual identity with him they are not only possessed by the devil but are radically devils themselves there are thus two radically different kinds of men in the world differing by nature not by grace and by their natural difference determining the difference which they manifest under grace to put it shortly the one kind of man is accessible to grace the other intrinsically inaccessible to it there is an original difference in the characters of men a difference which is not produced by the gospel but which exists before the gospel is heard and is in fact the cause of the different consequences resulting from the gospel in different persons the gospel no doubt is presented to all alike but there are some who cannot receive it while others are so far honest and good that the word when it comes to them is gladly received they are not saved by nature but they are adapted by nature to be saved by grace human nature says noise reverting as is his wont to sexual imagery is a female which conceives and brings forth sin or righteousness according as it has satan or god for its husband which is only a lame figure by which he means to say that those men who are in the deepest depths of their nature of god are saved those who are in the deepest depths of their nature of the devil are lost god being a prudent person does not attempt to save those who are by their very nature lost the gospel which is sent indiscriminately into the world reaches them of course as well as others though only to manifest by its rejection their real character but in all the hidden operations of his grace he confines himself to those who are salvable electing them to salvation and reprobating those whom he knows in his infinite foreknowledge to be inaccessible to his saving operations to eternal misery 
with this ontology behind him noises soteriology naturally takes the form fundamentally of the destruction of the evil principle in the world christ came primarily to destroy the devil and to deliver those who have been taken captive by him from his domination that is to say those of them who are capable of this deliverance he does not bear our sins he delivers us from sin it is satan not he who bears our sins the penalty of all sin is actually inflicted on the devil who is actually the author of it here is no evasion no substitution of an innocent person for an offender the law has its course man is saved not because god abrogates the law or evades it by a fiction but because he rightfully imputes the sins of which men are the instruments to the devil as their real author if it be the devil however who expiates our sins it is christ who delivers us from them he does this by entering by incarnation the very sphere in which sin reigns and bringing there the strength of the godhead into immediate contact with the strength of the devil in the very field which was to be won a twofold effect was sought and was obtained on the negative side men were to be freed from the dominion of the devil on the positive they were to be effectively united with god in the place of the devil god was to be brought into immediate control of their lives in order to accomplish this double work christ required not only to enter this world of living men but to follow men into the world of the dead where satan had his sanctuary here his saving work culminated for the death of christ was a spiritual baptism into the devil of which the corporeal crucifixion was only an index and continuation or more fully stated jesus christ by his death entered into the vitals of the devil and overcame him he thus destroyed the actual cause of sin the effect of this act on them that believe is to release them from the power of sin and on them that believe not to consign them with the devil to destruction everything depends on faith for faith is the vehicle by which christ not merely the word of christ but christ himself is received into the soul no doubt this reception of christ is mediated by the word but the word is no mere series of sounds it is a fact well known to spiritualists that the word of every spiritual being is an actual substance sent forth from his inward centre carrying with it the properties of his life it is also a known fact that the act of believing actually receives into the soul and spirit the substance conveyed in the word believed so that communication by word from one person to another affects an actual junction of spirits and conveys to the receiver a portion of the life and character of the communicator thus by believing we receive christ his flesh and blood which does not mean his material body but a spiritual substance of which his material body was but the envelope his soul and spirit belonging to his pre-existent state a spiritual body and a life within it receiving this we become sons of god and partakers of the eternal life of the father our salvation shows itself in four great benefits which we enjoy salvation from all sin security from all future sin deliverance from external law independence of all human teaching we have become one with christ and thereby are freed from the evil one and these things are the mark of our emancipation we say says noise that none are or have been christians in the sense that paul was if his state corresponded to his preaching who have not received perfect holiness perfect security perfect liberty and perfect independence by the blood of christ holiness says noise is the principal object of the atonement forgiveness is first in the order of time but is only a means to the end of purification dividing salvation into two great parts viz forgiveness of past sin and purification for present sin 
it is plainly implied in nearly all the declarations of the bible touching the subject that the latter part is the primary and the former the secondary object of the work of christ there is a sense of course in which such a statement might be accepted as substantially true it is intended here however in the sense in which it is the common declaration of all perfectionists and has as its end to convey the idea that enjoyment of the salvation from sin wrought out by christ is just immediate entrance into a perfectly holy state noise does not hold to be sure this proposition to be universally true the old testament saints for example he teaches did not receive their salvation until the coming of christ they lived not in fruition but in hope they had not yet been born of god christ was the first-born son of god but were only heirs of a future sonship only prospectively children experimentally merely servants when christ came they received their perfect holiness both those in this and those in the spiritual world together the disciples of christ and apostolic believers similarly did not receive their salvation until the second coming of christ which took place according to noise in a d seventy hence the sins of old testament saints disciples of christ apostolic believers are irrelevant as objections against the assertion that perfection is essential to the experience of salvation we need not look for perfect men until after the second coming a d seventy somewhat inconsistently however a good deal of space is given to proving that paul was perfect of course noise begins by setting aside romans seven fourteen and following philippians three twelve and following one corinthians nine twenty seven this passage no doubt rightly two corinthians twelve seventeen one timothy one fifteen and ends with paul's assertions of his own integrity Ritchel could not have done it better there are visible in the apostolic church he says in explanation two distinct classes of believers immature and mature one corinthians two six and the mature of whom paul was one were perfectly holy this class grew in number and distinctness till at last when john wrote his epistles perfectionism was fully developed and had become the acknowledged standard of christian experience quoting the passages in one john which are ordinarily relied on in this sense he comments if this is not perfectionism we know not how by human language perfectionism can be expressed there is left he admits one little text one john one eight but when rightly understood this does not run athwart the others it refers to pre-perfection sins we think it not uncharitable to say he remarks that they who persist in construing this verse as opposed to the doctrine of salvation from sin or in regarding it as sufficient to offset all the plain assertions scattered through the whole epistle that perfect holiness is the only standard of true christianity belong to that class of persons who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel it would be hoping too much to expect that noise could wholly escape the universal tendency of perfectionists to explain the perfection which they assert as something less than perfect when answering objections to his doctrine he tells us for example that to be perfectly holy is not necessarily to be free from infirmity we mean by perfect holiness he says adding using the expression in its lowest sense simply the purity of heart which gives a good conscience this is a very ambiguous statement doubtless taken strictly the purity of heart which gives a good conscience is an absolutely pure heart or else the conscience fails to accuse when accusation were fitting but employing the language in its current meaning something very far from perfect purity may be expressed by it and that noise is employing the language in this lowered meaning an illustration he adduces in connection with it sufficiently proves 
this is not however his ordinary manner of speaking of the perfection he asserts it is rather characteristic of him to carry it to the height of its idea in one passage for example he expounds one john three three to ten with a view to showing from the declaration he that committeth sin is of the devil that the real christian never sins at all seeing that one sin is enough to manifest an essentially devilish character when asked how much a man may sin and still be a christian he says john answers that he cannot sin at all and be a christian there is no middle ground we are either as righteous as christ or as wicked as the devil the children of god are perfectly holy sin in every case proves the subjects of it children of the devil john does not say he that committeth sin habitually is of the devil or he that committeth known sin is of the devil or he that committeth wilful sin is of the devil or he that committeth sin is of the devil while he is committing it he says he that committeth sin is of the devil and we are to take the word of god just as it stands it is good philosophy which james enunciates when he said he that offendeth in one point is guilty of all this insistence on the perfection of perfection is not only the usual view which noise expresses but it is the natural or rather the necessary one for him to take on the ground of his mystical doctrine of the procuring cause of our perfection of life which we have already seen him expounding christ liveth in me it is all summed up in that the necessary consequence of that condition he says is perfect holiness because christ is perfectly holy it belongs to the fundamental elements of his doctrine of salvation that christ has destroyed the devil and secured to god to himself as the saving god the entire control of the children of the woman hitherto living under the divided rule of god and the devil that is what salvation consists in and that is the reason that salvation is in the complete meaning of these words salvation from sin it is possible that noise is not quite consistent with himself however when he seeks to answer the question how is this union by which christ dwells in the soul and so saves it from sin to be effected at the place at the moment before us he replies as we have already seen him elaborately arguing elsewhere the witnesses of the new testament answer with one voice by believing the gospel his prepossession at this moment however is to show that this faith is not exercised in our own strength but it is the gift of god it is an act of the heart of man possible to all and in the highest sense obligatory on all but actually existing only when god in his sovereign mercy gives special grace he has forgiven all and sent the spirit of grace to all and so has left all utterly without excuse for remaining unreconciled but he has given faith only to them whom he chose in jesus christ before the world began it may be this teaching which he has in mind when he protests against dixon's representation of his doctrine of how we arrive at salvation from sin dixon says in effect that he teaches that we have only to believe and it is done in the passages that we have before us noise apparently teaches just that but he also teaches that we do not acquire holiness directly by faith but it as well as faith is a gift of god for noise like other perfectionists has a first and a second conversion only he does not make the second a mere repetition of the first seeking an additional blessing it is a radically different transaction the first is an action or purpose of our own a voluntary movement the second is an effect wrought on us we do the one we suffer the other the one is proximately our own work the second the operation of god by the first we become disciples by the second the children of god 
it is only by the second that we receive deliverance from all sin and on this teaching it is quite true that we do not merely have to believe and it is done deliverance from sin is a gift of god given to none but believers it is true but not acquired by faith the inevitable question is of course raised whether it is imperative that these two stages in the process of salvation from sin must be traversed or we may pass from a state of irreligion directly to perfect holiness the reply is that it is at least a general principle that men by their first conversion are introduced into sinful discipleship and reach perfect holiness only by a second conversion but it is added that the facts seem to require the admission that some have passed directly from irreligion to perfect holiness this is translated in a new paragraph into the explanation that while in the order of nature a twofold process is necessary the interval may be shortened so that to all intents and purposes no time intervenes and it may be it is added that after a while this may become the regular experience the height of the perfection thus secured we must remind ourselves is manifested not only in its completeness according to its idea but also to its indefectibility it is noise's constant teaching a teaching by which he differentiates his perfectionism from that of others that perfection once secured is secure thus for example writing of the new covenant he tells us that first it secures salvation from sin interpreting this as perfect sanctification and then secondly it secures salvation from sin forever adding further that this is really to speak repetitiously for salvation from sin in the proper signification of the expression is salvation from sin forever it is the characteristic of the new covenant he says that god secures the fulfilment of its requirements disposing men's hearts to fulfil them the second conversion is coincident or rather is identical with the second birth by the one as by the other we are said to become the children of god and free from all sin to become sons of god by this new birth means just what is meant by being united with christ as we have already seen that idea expounded it is now christ that lives in us and it is no more we that live all that we do he does through us and thus our total life manifestation perfectly corresponds with his will we are as in this view we must be just as perfect as christ is and of course we are just as spontaneous in our holy activities as he is as it is absurd to suppose him governed in his conduct by the precepts of an external law so it is absurd to suppose us his children and the organs of his activities to require or to be subject to an external law the children of christ just because they are perfectly holy and perfectly secure in their holiness are also emancipated from the law and need not that any should teach them of themselves they do that which is right noise naturally desires not to be thought of as an antinomian it is not antinomianism that he teaches he says but anti-legality he believes that the law the whole law moral as well as ceremonial has been abolished for the sons of god but this does not mean that we have escaped beyond the government of god it means only that the instrument through which he governs us has been changed from law to grace he even says that the standard of the holiness which constitutes the ultimate object of god's government has suffered no alteration only the measures which god chooses to employ to effect that object have been changed the children of god neglect law not because they desire to be free to sin but precisely because they have no desire to sin and do not require law to restrain them from it it is the way of holiness not of sin that they pursue and they pursue it because it has become their second nature and they cannot do otherwise they do not transgress the law but have transcended it 
they are not seeking an easy mode of escaping the necessity of works but have found the only and the sure foundation of such works as will survive the fire of judgment now noise says regeneration or salvation from sin that is perfection is the incipient stage of the resurrection we are married to christ he reasons and the status of the wife of course follows that of the husband since christ has risen from the dead we therefore are living the resurrected life we have passed from the carnal into the resurrection state from this world into the heavenly world our state and relations are as fully changed as the idea of a translation from earth to heaven demands believers by fellowship with christ in his resurrection are released from the beggarly elements and carnal ordinances of that worldly sanctuary which they have left we are freed then from sin and we are freed from the law for law cannot carry its claim beyond death and we are freed indeed even from death itself at first from its sting but not its form since men were so far within the territory of him that has the power of death that they are slow to escape from its form but this too is coming the intent of the gospel we are told in another place was and is to take people out of this wicked world into a state beyond death in which the believer is spiritually with christ in the resurrection and hence is free from sin and law and all the temporary relations of the moral state the church has its standing therefore now in a posthumous state a posthumous state which may also be called the angelic state in this angelic state as is natural different conditions obtain from those of the carnal state in which we have hitherto lived and free social relations are to be inaugurated as soon as existing obligations can be disposed of when he wrote these words noise was thinking of the abolition of marriage in the resurrection or angelic state in accordance with matthew twenty two twenty six to thirty which he absurdly reads as the proclamation of the reign of promiscuity in this state thus throwing a lurid light on his contention that the abolishment of the law in the resurrection state is not that evil may be done but that good may be done spontaneously in this case at least the law is simply reversed and made to read thou shalt have thy neighbour's wife it is not however merely a relaxation of morals which noise finds in the resurrected state he finds in it also as has been already incidentally noted nothing less than the abolition of death itself although he recognizes that this is to come as the last result of christ's victory over sin and death and it is to be noted that it is precisely through the abolition of marriage that is to say the institution of promiscuity in the relations of the sexes that the abolition of death is to come death is to be abolished and to this end there must be a restoration of true relations between the sexes when what he has to say on this point is weighed the underlying meaning appears to be that sexual promiscuity is absolutely essential to the existence of a communistic society and the abolition of death is to result from the removal in a communistic society of the wearing evils which in the present mode of social organization bring men to exhaustion and death remove these evils which kill man and man will cease to die communism that is is conceived as so great a panacea that it not only cures all the evils of life but brings also immortality and there seems to be no reason for a man to die in a communistic society running through the four great evils in which he sums up the curses which afflict life in our present social organization noise says first we abolish sin that is by entering through faith into a perfect life then shame that is by practicing free love then the curse on woman of exhausting childbearing that is by using his recipe for birth control then the curse on man of exhausting labor that is 
through community labour in the attractive association of the sexes, and so we arrive regularly at the tree of life. All the antecedents of death are removed, and so, of course, death itself. Reconciliation with God opens the way for the reconciliation of the sexes. Reconciliation of the sexes emancipates woman and opens the way for vital society. Vital society increases strength, diminishes work, and makes labor attractive, thus removing the antecedents of death. Perfectionism, free love, community in industry, in happy association. Take these things and you will not die. At the bottom lies nothing other than the amazing assumption that communistic association, if you can only achieve it, will bring immortality. All the other steps are only the means to communism. We have permitted ourselves to be drawn aside from the purely theological aspects of this matter by Noyes's own later mode of speaking of it. His doctrine of the abolition of death dates, however, from the spring of 1834, the period when he formed his theological system, and he wrote of it frequently before he became engrossed in the actual experiment of communism. He gives us a full account of the origin of it in his mind in an article written in 1844. On one occasion, he says, when he sat down to write, his mind wandered off to the subject of the resurrection. He explains, the gospel which I had received and preached was based on the idea that faith identifies the soul with Christ, so that by his death and resurrection the believer dies and rises again, not literally, nor yet figuratively, but spiritually, and thus, so far as sin is concerned, is placed beyond the grave in heavenly places with Christ. This was the doctrine of the New York perfectionists, and carrying it beyond its application to the cessation of sin, they derived from it their notion of spiritual wives, as Noyes was just at this moment deducing from it his notion of sexual promiscuity. But Noyes continues, I now began to think that I had given this idea but half its legitimate scope. I had availed myself of it for the salvation of my soul. Why should it not be carried out to the redemption of the body? The question came home with imperative force, why ought I not to avail myself of Christ's resurrection fully, and by it overcome death as well as sin? I sought that identity with Christ by which I might realize his emancipation from death, as well for my body as for my soul, that I might with him see death behind me, the debt of nature paid. What I sought I obtained. He plays a little with the difference between deliverance from the spiritual power of death and from the act of dying. He will not affirm that he will never die, but he asks, why should he die? And he asserts that he is not a debtor to the devil even in regard to the form of dying. And this I know, he says, that if I live till the kingdom of God comes, which I believe is near, I shall never die in fact or in form. This was written in September 1844, and on June the 1st, 1847 it was solemnly declared by noise and his whole community by unanimous resolution as the confession and testimony of the believers assembled precisely that the kingdom of god has come after that they were not to die the confidence of the possession of a deathless life thus expressed is grounded on a purely spiritual experience the anticipation elaborately argued a generation later that the practice of communism would confer immortality on men is drawn chiefly from materialistic considerations. Must we see in this difference an index of the downward growth through the years? Fantastic always, fanatic always, must we say of noise. He once was religious, now he is secularized. No doubt this was the direction of his growth, but there is a form of religion which is worse than any secularism. Men's religions are often their worst crimes. 
and there are forms of secularism which approach religion in their nobility, though Noyes's secularism can hardly find a place among them. These are the salient facts to keep well in mind. All that was salacious in his secularism, Noyes found a sanction for in his religion, and all that was bad in his religion was already in it in 1834. We cannot think there ever was a time when Noyes's influence was wholesome, or when it was creditable to his associates that they had attached themselves to him, or found profit or pleasure in his teachings. That he did not draw men of light and leading to him causes us no surprise. What astonishes us is that men like Charles H. Weld and James Boyle were temporarily associated with him, and that even a William Lloyd Garrison found in him something to admire and imitate a fact so remarkable ought not to be passed by without remark. Garrison appears to have been familiar with Noyes's perfectionist movement, and an admiring reader of his journal practically from its beginning. Personal acquaintance was instituted when Noyes called on him at the anti-slavery office at Boston in March 1837. In describing the interview, Noyes says that he found Garrison, Stanton, Whittier, and other leading abolitionists warmly engaged in a dispute about political matters. I heard them quietly, he continues, and when the meeting broke up I introduced myself to Garrison. He spoke with interest of the perfectionist, said his mind was heaving on the subject of holiness and the kingdom of heaven, and he would devote himself to them as soon as he could get anti-slavery off his hands. I spoke to him especially of the government, and found him, as I had expected, ripe for the loyalty of heaven. Noise was not the man to fail to strike such iron when it was hot. He at once addressed Garrison a letter in which he sought to push home whatever advantage he had gained in the interview. In this letter he announced his emancipation from all allegiance to the government of the United States, and declared war upon it, a country which, by its boasting hypocrisy, he said, has become a laughing-stock of the world, and by its lawlessness has fully proved the incapacity of man for self-government. My hope of the millennium, he declared, begins where Dr. Beecher's expires, viz. at the overthrow of this nation." The times seemed to him to be ripening to the issue, which would come in a convulsion like that of France. He calls, therefore, on the abolitionists to abandon a government whose president has declared war upon them. Then, turning to the special fish he wished to fry, he adds, Allow me to suggest that you will set anti-slavery in the sunshine only by making it tributary to holiness, and you will most assuredly throw it into the shade which now covers colonization, if you suffer it to occupy the ground in your own mind or in others which ought to be occupied by universal emancipation from sin i counsel you and the people who are with you if you love the post of honour the forefront of the battle of righteousness to set your faces towards perfect holiness your station is one that gives you power over the nations your city is on a high hill if you plant the standard of perfect holiness where you stand many will see and flow to it that Garrison should have been affected by this empty rhetoric is astonishing, but he was, deeply and lastingly. Noises, phrases, and representations lingered in his memory. He quoted from them publicly, and publicly spoke of their author as an esteemed friend, whose words had deeply affected his mind. He even made Noises anti-government and perfectionist ideas his own. No wonder that the soberer friends of the anti-slavery agitation took alarm and sought to disassociate the movement from what were, and were likely to be, Garrison's personal vagaries. And little wonder that those who already were full of outrage at Garrison's 
ultraisms attributed to him this further ultraism his friend and mentor's doctrine of sexual promiscuity in doing this they were happily wrong garrison's infatuation for noise had limits and did not carry him into this cesspool he repudiated the imputation with passion and was led in the end to explain that his perfectionism was not the perfectionism of noise but that of asa mahan whose book on the scriptural doctrine of christian perfection was opportunely published in eighteen thirty nine he permits to appear in the liberator in december eighteen thirty nine a communication in which it is said of him but some say he is a perfectionist and believes that let him do what he will it is no sin that is false his views on the subject of holiness are in unison with those of mr mahan that is to say although asserting the attainability of perfection in this life and the duty of all to attain it he did not advance with noise to antinomian contentions if says he writing in self-defence in eighteen forty one what we have heard of the sayings and doings of the perfectionists especially those residing in vermont be true they have certainly turned the grace of god into licentiousness and have given themselves over to a reprobate mind but he adds whatever may be the conduct of these perfectionists the duty which they enjoin the ceasing from all iniquity at once and forever is certainly what god requires and what cannot be denied without extreme hardihood and profligacy of spirit it is reasonable and therefore attainable if men cannot help sinning they are not guilty in attempting to serve two masters if they can then it cannot be a dangerous doctrine to preach and he is a rebel against the government of god who advocates an opposite doctrine thus although noise contributed to that great accumulation of ultraistic notions which filled garrison's mind he could not attach him to his sect it is not without its interest meanwhile to find garrison among the perfectionists and indeed to tell the whole truth vigorously engaged in the perfectionist propaganda it might almost be said that there was no ultraism current in his day which he did not in some measure embrace end of john humphrey noyes and his bible communists the doctrine by b b warfield